In 258 on Essos, another challenge rose to Aegon's reign when nine outlaws, exiles, pirates, and sellsword captains met in the disputed lands beneath the Tree of Crowns to form an unholy alliance. The Band of Nine swore their oath of mutual aid and support in carving out kingdoms for each of their members. Among them was the last Blackfire, Maelys the Monstrous, who had command of the Golden Company, and the kingdom they pledged to win for him was the Seven Kingdoms. Prince Duncan, when told of the pact, famously remarked that crowns were being sold nine a penny. Thereafter, the Band of Nine became known as the Nine Penny Kings in Westeros. It was thought at first that the free cities of Essos would surely bring their power against them and put an end to their pretensions. But nonetheless, preparations were made should Maelys and his allies turn on the Seven Kingdoms. Yeah, welcome back, my fellow Westorians. That is a great quote to start this fun episode off about Maelys the Montrist and the Nine Penny Kings and the Band of Nine. When Septon Maribald gave his famous broken man speech, one of the more memorable and moving passages in the entire series of books, this was the war he was talking of. Of course, he was speaking of war in general, but he himself fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings, and it's the one that he remembers most clearly, most personally. I think it's fair to say Robert's Rebellion was a war that did a lot to define the lives of the men and women who came of age roughly 20 years before A Song of Ice and Fire started. The war that defined their fathers and mothers' generation, however, if any did, was the War of Ninepenny Kings. Like Robert's Rebellion, there are huge gaps in our knowledge of what actually transpired during it, but we know quite a lot, and the world we're given is so well-defined that we can extrapolate quite a bit more, too. Fire and Blood 2 is a long way away, maybe a long, long way away, <laughs> but that's when we could expect to fill the rest of those gaps, at least some of them, but there's a good chance we get quite a bit more in detail in the Winds of Winter, too. After all, we have a John Connington as POV, and the Golden Company are heavily involved in the plot, and more. The Dance of the Dragons and the Blackfire Rebellions are both full of foreshadowing for the plot lines of young Griff and Jon Snow, thus Daenerys as well, and thus Illyrio and Varys and John Connington and Tyrion and so many others. On top of that, Rob's will hangs over the story still. And when that plotline issue was first introduced in A Storm of Swords, it was also the introduction of the Blackfires. The first mention is by Stannis, i.e. a guy from a house also founded by a particularly prominent Targaryen bastard by the name of Oris Baratheon. To be clear, elements of the Blackfires were introduced right away. In A Game of Thrones, we get the story of Aegon the Unworthy, his brother Aemon the Dragon Knight, their sister Nerys, and the dispute over Daron the Good's parentage. Bloodraven is obviously present from the get-go as well, even if his name isn't. But it wasn't fully fleshed out. The name Blackfire hadn't been conceived when A Game of Thrones was published. Point being that Blackfire's being tied to Rob's will and Young Griff, etc., means that they are still lessons untold from that era that could provide groundwork for A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, after Rob's will and the tie-ins to the earlier plot lines like Aemon the Dragon Knight and Bloodraven, Blackfire-related history starts popping up semi-regularly, both in A Song of Ice and Fire, such as the possibility Young Griff himself is of Blackfire descent, and or that Illyrio may have Blackfire the sword itself. The Dance with Dragons has the most Blackfire stuff of any of the five A Song of Ice and Fire novels, and it surrounds plot lines that are yet to be resolved, meaning it's very likely George R. R. Martin will include more Blackfire lore in The Winds of Winter, not just Fire and Blood 2. If we're right about that, then it's good for us all to be well aware of the most recent Blackfire activity, which was only, like I said, about 20 years before Robert's Rebellion. Heck, a current POV character slew Maelys the Montrist in single combat, and it would all it would take is for 
that character, Barrett in the Bold, to think about that for a few minutes to give us a fantastic mini story within the greater story. Like two paragraphs of memory from Barristan would do a lot right there. Other non-POV characters are possibilities too. The Blackfish fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings. For example, Stannis' father, Stefan, died in a shipwreck, but he fought in this war and his father, meaning Stannis' grandfather, Lord Orman, was named commander of the Westerosi armies. So when the Blackfire plot peaks, which might be in the Winds of Winter, we'll know what we're dealing with as well as anyone in this fandom. Many people out there not listening to this episode will read more about Maylis and the other Nine Penny Kings and think, that's cool. They'll have a great time with it. That's a credit to George because even, even without a deep dive, it's fun. But you'll read it and it'll hit so much harder because you'll know so much more. Learning the rest of what there is to know about these characters will pay off. But there are great stories here all on their own as well. Not only do we have a cast of little-known characters that will flesh out, but there's quite a bit of action from familiar characters in their younger days. In addition to Barristan the Bull, the Blackfish, and Stannis' grandsire, Lord Orman, this episode will include the White Bull, Gerald Hightower, Poster Tully and his friendship with a certain Lord Baelish, Tywin and Kevin Lannister, the Red Lion, Roger of House Rain, Prince Aerys, not so mad back then, Aegon the Unlikely, a.k.a. Egg, Kellon Greyjoy, the father of Balon, Euron, Victorian, and Aaron, and of course, Septon Maribald. So greetings, everybody. With me, as always, is Shea, handling all the different tasks behind the scenes. We actually have worked things out so that she can uh, speak during our guest episodes at last. We had to work around some technology. Some of y'all may not be aware that Google Hangouts is no longer a thing, and we've been moving around trying to figure out new setups outside of Google Hangouts, and well, it hasn't been easy. But also, I want to welcome, with that in mind, with this technology in mind, all these challenges, our returning guest, Stephen Atwell of Race for the Iron Throne. Welcome back, Stephen. Hey, it's great to be here. Right on. So let's talk about real quickly what you've been up to. You, it's been a little while since you've been on, and you've probably done, well, I know you've done lots of things since then. So why don't you let everybody know, people who uh, maybe haven't been keeping up the close as they should, or who haven't paid attention in the last week or two, let them know what you're doing. Sure. Uh, so most recently, uh, I hit the 50% mark in Storm of Swords. That's uh, Brand 3, the, you know, Queen's Crown, uh, and the, you know, Hodor Stop Hodoring. <laughs> um, I just finished uh, John 5, uh, which is where he escapes from the, the raiding party. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that is actually available for my patrons right now, and it'll be up for everyone else tomorrow. And in other stuff, you know, now that I, like, I, I, I don't know, I got to first of inspiration with John five, but I'm looking to do some like more thematic essays for a while. Just, you know, take a bit of a break from just doing nothing but storm of swords. Uh, so I want to write about Duncan egg, uh, which is obviously relevant to the war of nine penny Kings. Uh, and I have a couple other projects like that lined up. Cool. Sounds, sounds really good. Yeah. Um, you're always staying super busy and putting out lots of good content. It's similar for us. We've just gotten through clash of Kings. So, it's nice for us to do something a little different because we've been we've been deep in our reread over here as well. And this is nice mm -hmm. for a change of pace. And it's a topic we've been wanting to do for a while. And we've known for a while that it would be you that we did it with. We've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, so a couple of shout outs for us and a quick announcement or two before we get going. And then, well, we'll get going. Thanks to uh, History of Westeros' first sword, Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper. And thanks also mm -hmm. to Tulanis the Talon, King of Gagasos, rider of Talarius the red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. 
You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash history of Westeros. You can find a variety of levels and benefits and things that you uh, that suit you. Things like episodes early and shout outs and access to our scripts are included as possibilities. Thank you to Tommy Pappas, who is one of our patrons, who sent a very generous super chat saying, in your best German accent, is it now the war of nine, nine, nine penny kings? <laughs> it's like, what is that show? We should do a mashup. It's uh, that... Brooklyn Nine-Nine Penny Kings or something like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 99 Luft Penny Kings. <laughs> yeah, something like that. A lot of that stuff I said at the beginning was my own thoughts, but I wanted to get you to weigh in on some of that as we get started, Stephen. Do you agree with my take that T-Wow will be fairly heavily Blackfire as far as, as, far as whatever heavy Blackfire means? But um, weigh in on that. I'm curious what you think about that. Sure. So, I mean, uh, you've already kind of identified some of the... Uh, most obvious suspects, right? Sir Barristan, John Connington, Young Griff, all of that. I definitely think that's right. I think there's some other possibilities as well, right? Peter Baelish mm -hmm. is very much part of Sansa's story. You know, it's possible that, you know, if word arrives of the Golden Company uh, landing in the Stormlands, that like he might have something to say about his father. Who uh, he hasn't really talked about that much. No, he hasn't. That's um, true. <laughs> you know, it. it's funny. It's like in a series where like so many people are absolutely consumed by like daddy issues. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's got pathologies of his own, but that doesn't seem to be hugely one of them. And yeah, I mean, Tyrion chapters, uh, as you said, another good, another good possibility. Yeah, he has that dream about looking kind of like Maylis himself. When he has the head, yes, and that's yeah, that's and the, the yeah the the one that's laughing and the one that's crying, yeah, uh, which is just a hell of an image. Yeah, right. Um, that's just bizarre. Like, it's is that magical? Is that predictive? Is that just him thinking about it? It's one of those things where you can't really. Yeah, is it more sure. metaphorical? So yeah, so I think yeah, we're probably going to see a good bit of uh, Blackfire stuff and the Golden Company. Uh, I, I guess the question is like. Depending on when we think Daenerys gets to Westeros mm. in the Winds of Winter, that like, is a big question. Is it at the very end of the book? Is it halfway through the book? First I feel like the towards book? the end because she's still at, she's not even gotten to Vase Dothrak yet, you know, and she's probably headed there. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it, you it depends know. on how it, it depends on how many chapters, right? If yeah, this is yeah. like, you know, because at times we've had like only you know four or five. Daenerys chapters in the book. And in other times, you have more like 13. Mm -hmm. So depending on how many chapters, you know, there are, there are to work with, I think that determines how much both sort of screen time and sort of distance she can travel without it seeming like the sort of like late season HBO. <laughs> like Little Finger virus is like, how did he get there so fast? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, good point. Yeah, so let's say um, I said at the beginning of this episode, this episode, I've been calling it this episode, but as we were working on this, uh, we realized that we have enough enough material here for two episodes. So this is very likely part one. We'll see how far we get, but I'm expecting this to be two episodes. We'll do a lot of setup and talking about the Band of Nine and, and Maylis and then what's going on on the, West, the Westeros side. And by part two slash the end of part one, we'll be talking about the war itself, and then we're getting into the aftermath. And the aftermath is really, really huge. It's one of the meatiest parts of this of this series because, as as, as we alluded to in the beginning, it's it's a defining moment. So for so many elder characters, and and thus 
their children were also impacted by the uh, the law of passing down uh, you know war from generation to generation, which is a law, right? That is how it works. You know. <laughs> Uh, so let's go into the band of nine penny kings. So let's get into who these guys were, where they were from, and all that. This first section is called The Dragon Must Have Two Heads. And we've got a quote for you. Captain of the Golden Company, named for his grotesquely huge torso and arms, fearsome strength, and savage nature. A second head grew from his neck, no bigger than a fist. He won command of the Golden Company by fighting his cousin, Damon Blackfire, for it, killing his cousin's destrier with a single punch and then twisting Damon's head until it was torn from his shoulders. Other than perhaps Damon Blackfire himself, no one is as important to the Blackfire rebellions as Bittersteel. The dynasty was launched by Damon, but Agor saved the Blackfire family and sword, protected them and the sword, and facilitated the third and fourth rebellions themselves. Not the second. He didn't back that one, as we've covered in the past. So you could say that the Blackfire cause exists through the blood of Damon and the sweat of Bittersteel, adding weight to this importance after Bittersteel's death, which came decades after Damon's. There were no more Blackfire rebellions, but the blood of Damon and the fruits of Bittersteel's labor did not die with either of them. The name and blood of a Blackfire, that's Damon's legacy. The Golden Company... That's Bittersteel's legacy. And the, they, with both of those things, Maylis, well, that's, he's not the kind of character you would expect to combine those legacies. But uh, he's never on screen, but his skulls are. Quote. The captain general's tent was made, of cloth and, was made of cloth of gold and surrounded by a ring of pikes topped with gilded skulls. One skull was larger than the rest, grotesquely malformed. Below it was a second, no larger, no larger than a child's fist, Melis the Monstrous and his nameless brother. The other skulls had a sameness to them, though several had been cracked and splintered by the blows that had slain them, and one had filed pointed teeth. So that's John Connington returning to the Golden Company after so long and taking a look at the skulls. That is a really, that is a, a brilliant pat paragraph because it gives us lots of fun historical information, but it also has, it's very metaphorical in a way that, or symbolic in a way that the other captains of the Golden Company are not as memorable as this guy, not just because of his huge skull, but because of the type of person he was and because of the things he did. Do you have any comments on that on that quote, Stephen? It's such a good one. Yeah, well, you know, partly it's the sort of idea that, like, in death, our individuality is stripped away. It's that whole like totentanz thing that you see in in uh, especially in like medieval German uh, art literature, where you're you know people are literally like taking off their flesh as if it's clothing, and underneath we're all skeletons. Uh, But Malus retains some level of his sort of, uh, shall we say, larger than life uh, <laughs> <Literally>. nature. <laughs> yeah. uh, although I have to say, I like the one with the, the filed pointed teeth. I'm so curious like about the, that guy. <laughs> Martin has a, a, a way of building in mystery with very few words. Mm-hmm. And that's a great example. I, I think, is it the Jogos Nye that have that file their teeth, or there, there's some group in in Essos that do. I think you might be right, but I did not look that up. That's a good, that's a good question. Uh, but it definitely suggests that this like 
this legacy of because because you normally think right you know in, in all the rest of the series heads on pikes is what you do to your enemy <laughs> yeah not to right? your past <laughs> it's your, your it's heroes. you know here it's like transformed into this this like honor this funeral honor and of course you know it is that started with Bittersteel. He commanded that this be done uh, in part because he sort of wanted to see victory and, you know, even in death, um, you know, it's part of this whole thing where like his feud with blood Raven, right. Continues past a normal human lifespan that, yeah. you know, he wasn't a, a sorcerer who could, you know, extend his life by, you know, getting hooked up to a tree IV, but <laughs> tree you know, IV. he could, he could build this human institution and in that way sort of live on as this kind of legend and totem. It's really good. Yeah. That's, that's really well said. Um, and he is, it's true too, because you like it, like he just kind of how he inverted cell swords by making them lo- like loyal and dependable and professional He's inverted this concept of the heads on pikes. I never thought about it that way. That's a really good take. Melee's the the name is a feminine form of a branch branch French slash Breton uh, name male uh, M A E L meaning chief or prince. So I wonder if George was playing with that or if that's just a coincidence. Now I think there's some very clear comparisons to Gregor slash Magor here. Now Gregor and Magor have a lot of comparisons to each other. So this guy is kind of like part of that triumvirate of of type of characters like this. He has Magor's sort of similar heritage and upbringing and and Gregor's more of Gregor's deformed size. Um, he's not as big as Gregor, but uh, instead of the nasty headaches, he has a second head. Instead of being, you know, killing his, potentially killing his father, he may have killed his, well, he killed his cousin. It's, it's Gregor who may have killed his own father. Well, and, and his, his brother. Yeah, 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 tried to kill his own brother, right? So this is clearly the kinslaying stuff is there. Then you have this sort of aspect of undeath around them. Gregor is obviously a product of necromancy at this point. Whether he's technically dead or ever dead doesn't really matter. That aura surrounds him, that concept. Magor, sort of the same. He was in a coma for 28 days and then mysteriously rose when Tiana, a sorceress Tiana came and worked with him. So there's well, definitely, or, or that could be his his mother. Visenya. Yeah, you're right. So, Either way, it's something kind of unnatural. Visenya, Tiana, getting getting dirty with all that. I don't know what they did, but it's a similar kind of idea. Melee's meanwhile, there's less sorcery, but he's carrying around a dead twin with him at all times. So there's like this death surrounding him as well. He's also got some things in common with Damon Targaryen, uh, in that Damon Targaryen was a, a great warrior. He wasn't um, malformed or anything, but he was—he started off down on the chain and tried to work his way oh, up. He was malformed, possibly on the inside. Like, <laughs> yes, you know how there's soul. like some adaptations <laughs> of Richard III where like the the actor goes like very much into like what the deformities were, and then some in which like the character. Richard is not deformed. It's just his, <laughs> his spirit that was. I remember I saw one where the whole shtick was that the hunchback and the, the withered arm would only be there when he was alone on stage. Oh, okay. Interesting. That's um, interesting. So it was more about sort of like, this is what his soul looks like. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I agree with you. Damon Targaryen did not have a, a good looking soul. And of course, the whole business with the Stepstones is another thing we have in common. Damon Targaryen was king on the Stepstones for a little while before he surrendered his crown to his brother. 
And Nalys, of course, crowned himself, and they, the Band of Nine did take the Stepstones. So he wasn't necessarily king of the Stepstones, but he was a king, and he and his group did control the Stepstones. So it's pretty close. I wonder, it's just as a quick aside, what type of king Nalys might have been. I, I kind of think of it was, probably would have been a bit like Magor, very, very warlike, very trying to be an alpha male about everything, not having much, uh, not having a gentle touch on anything, just being blunt and, and uh, aggressive about it. Yeah, I things. imagine he, he would have probably spent his entire reign like putting down rebellions. <laughs> yeah. Like that's if he got himself onto the Iron Throne. It's just, by that point, I, I think things that had divided or diverged too much between the Blackfire exiles and sort of mainstream Westerosi society. You know what? Once, once occurring to me just now, a, a comparison that might just be random, maybe something that George was, was thinking of, was the Roman emperor Maximinus Thrax, who uh, I, I'm not sure if you, you might be familiar with him. He was uh, elected by his, he was a soldier kind of elected by the rest of the legion he was part of, and they just named him emperor. And he was a big, huge warrior that ruled kind of like what we're describing. He, he tried to rule the empire like a, like a soldier, and that just does, did not work. Hmm. Interesting name too, right? Maximinus Thrax, like seven foot tall, <laughs> badass Roman legionary. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I'm going to read about that guy. So uh, let's move on though. Um, speaking of Blackfire the sword, this is a, what's interesting is how it's not mentioned at all as part of the saga of the, of the Nine Penny Kings. And we're really just left to wonder, it seems like it might've been lost to the Blackfires back all the way back in the third Blackfire Rebellion. Or maybe I have a small head cannon that it could have been destroyed at Summerhall. Not too likely, but and we have or this evidence have, that Illyrio still has it, right? Yeah, I mean, my guess is that probably, you know, it may have been lost many times because, you know, after the third, right, Bittersteel gets captured and then escapes because he has friends at court, and that would make sense that like if they captured it because you know. It's, it seems fairly clear that um, uh, Hagon Blackfire died after having surrendered. Yes. You know, if that's the case, then, you know, his sword would have fallen to the Targaryens, but I could see it disappearing along with Bittersteel. Yeah. Uh, but then they might have lost it again in the fourth, because, again, that is a case where a Blackfire king dies in, on Westerosi soil. Yeah. Um, and what becomes of, of his his uh, arms and armor. And of course, Bittersteel did escape that one too, the fourth. So there's, you know, maybe just like he escaped the first and took Blackfire, it's possible that's what happened in the fourth. Of course, then the question is, how did he get it back? And well, there was, there's this been, the world of Ice and Fire gave us a theory as to how Illyrio got his dragon eggs, which was, and of course, I'm not referring to Alyssa Farman. That's a theory going back even farther. I'm referring to the, the little note in the world of ice and fire that even Ares had eggs, uh, Ares the second that is, and th- thus it would be very easy for Varys to abscond with a few eggs and hand them over to Illyrio, who then gives them to Neris. Why not steal the Targaryen sword in the chaos as well of all that? And that could be how Illyrio uh, still has it or got it back, as you say. Maybe he didn't now, have it, then got you know it back. That that would fit the whole Varys model of like stealing stuff and then selling it back to people. <laughs> right on, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, arguably the whole project has been from the beginning, 
to like steal the Targaryen dynasty and then sell it back to Westeros. Yes. Um, so like having the sword Blackfire be part of that would kind of fit the model. Right on. Yeah, that's that's very true. So let's talk about this then. Bittersteel didn't back Damon the second in the second rebellion, as we know. Uh, rebellion in quotes there. And it seems this was due to concerns over his personality and or capabilities. He did quite famously back Hagon in the third and then Damon the third in the fourth rebellion. That's a little bit of a confusing sentence. So two questions. Who succeeded Bittersteel after his death in 241? And what did everyone, Agor, his predecessor, and the rest think of Melis when he was born? So I'm going to let Stephen weigh in, but real first, a little context. Melis died in 260, and Bittersteel died in 241. So only 19 years before. Thus, their lives very likely overlapped, maybe not by much, maybe only a couple years. But Melis was a huge man, and huge people generally get most of their genetic hugeness early on. He probably ascended quickly. He was probably a, a really good warrior really fast, just like Gregor and Sandor and these other big dudes. If he didn't, then it gets even more interesting because then we're looking at a scenario where Bittersteel knew Melis when he was eight or nine, maybe even 10 to 12, if not older. So Sandor killed his first man at age 12. So there's certainly precedent for 12-year-olds who were warriors. Like there's a story about a 12-year-old warrior who joined the infamous um, Yams Vikings who were like a Viking mercenary company in the ninth century. And this guy, to get in this company, you had to fight one of the existing warriors. And this 12-year-old won his way in. And so it's, this isn't even, you know, uh, a fantasy thing necessarily. And of course, we know about, uh, if, if y'all are familiar with the Janissaries, who were slave soldiers raised from birth, that's pretty similar to the Unsullied. So we have things like this out there. So anyway, uh, Stephen, let me get your thoughts on that, whether... A, what, um, whether you think Magor and Agor's, or Melis and Agor's lives overlapped and what things like, uh, what people would have thought about this, this kid. Mm. Well, I mean, it's interesting because to, to me, the, the question comes back to the changing mechanism for leadership of the Golden Company, yeah. right? For most of its history, it seems to have been elected, right? The captain to become captain general. The only example we have of a challenge so far is Malus. Yeah. And Malus was like the, you know, he, he was not an equal challenger. It was his cousin who had the command and then he was the, the challenger. So, you know, part of me wonders, like, was this a, to, to use a slightly odd historical analogy, but like, Lenin on his deathbed, trying, arguing that don't pick Stalin, you know, I don't like him. And, you know, when, when the, you know, decision is like, what's going to happen to the next generation? Did Bittersteel have a will? Did he name a successor? Was there an election? You know, if so, you know, probably Melis lost that election because I imagine it was one of these scenarios where he's, he certainly, he was known for having this kind of like dark charisma, right? He, he brings other people in to work with him. But the fact that he wasn't the first choice, right? The fact that he had to engage in this kind of like almost Conan-esque act of kinslaying, right? Killing a horse by punching it in the head. That suggests a, a situation where like his strength and ferocity was known, but his character was feared. Mm. But this is sort of largely speculation. Um, <laughs> Uh, the only thing that we know is that, like, whatever the situation was, he clearly wasn't the first choice. 
because he had to to fight that duel in order to get the golden in able in order to get everything else. Yeah. What do you think about his his look apart from the obvious two head, you know, the strange second head coming out of his his neck? Do you think he had the the silver hair and, and purple eyes? So in, in every other instance where heavy Targaryen deformity has come up, it's always been in the context of of inbreeding. Yeah. And, you know, one of the the things that, you know, seems to have come up it you know is the fact that like the Blackfires prided themselves on the fact that Damon had more Targaryen blood than Daron did, true, and yeah. that he didn't marry a Martell; he married someone who also had the blood of Old Valyria. So I can imagine them adopting a more strict version of like this, you know. Uh, incestuous marriage in order to maintain that Targaryen Valyrian heritage. That's a good to point. To say we are we are the true Targaryens, not these, uh, not Baylor Breakspear and all of these people who don't look like Targaryens. And certainly in all of the like the official artwork that we've seen of Malus the Monstrous, you definitely see this like huge shock of silver hair. That's true. And giants like he looks like. You know, evil Santa Claus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like this just big, big guy with his huge beard, huge hair. Which is a little confusing to me because that's part of where I, uh, my theory that he was on the younger side does not really reflect the way he looks in some of the official art that say in the yeah. Bison Fire. He looked like you said, he looks like kind of like a Santa Claus. It's strange seeing him without a helmet because you would expect, you know, on TV, you see them do that all the time so you don't lose track of who's who. But in the books, guys who go into battle wear helmets. And what kind of strange-ass helmet would he have? <laughs> I mean, yeah, Tyrosh is it, known for strange helmets, so they could well, take But also, his, his physical deformity yeah. may have actually interfered with his, his armor in that case. Uh, but I also think it, it's like one of those things where anytime young or old, right, silver hair is something that we associate with old people. So I imagine that like part of the thing that makes the like Targaryen look so otherworldly is that they look kind of ancient even when they're young. Mm. Mm, that yeah. they're like young people with old people's hair. That's just slightly disconcerting. Makes make them seem a little um, wiser than they should be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, a little bit little bit village of the damned. Uh, <laughs> And like you said, given where the Blackfires reside, which is the disputed lands and Tyrosh and all that, if they didn't do intermarrying within their own line, they could pretty easily find more Targaryen features to marry into to keep the look at least. Yeah. So unlike in Westeros where those things are, are pretty rare. So I really wonder, like from a superstitious perspective, what did it seem like to the Blackfires and just the people around in Tyrosh, not necessarily Blackfires, but the people who knew and in Westeros as well. When this guy was born, what did they think? I mean, it's a superstitious world. You got a, a, a person born with this really strange feature that's extremely, extremely rare in the real world. There is precedent for such a thing, but it's so rare that you can't expect the, that Westeros to treat it or Essos to treat it like a scientific anomaly. They will treat it like some sort of strange supernatural prodigy. And Yeah, I was going to say, like, if we look at how they, they react 
you know, how Westeros reacted to Tyrion's work. Like, yeah. it was seen as a dark omen. It was seen as, like, the punishment of the gods. So I imagine, like, on the Westerosi side, they would have been like, look, this is proof, mm-hmm. right? You know, this is the evil at the heart of the, you know, treacherous Blackfires. Good point, um, yeah. <laughs> It'd be really easy to use that propaganda sells itself. <laughs> I imagine, like, you know, this is, again, you know, sort of speculation feeding into my whole thing about him not being the second choice. But, like, there was such an emphasis among the Blackfires about Damon's physical perfection. Yeah. And the physical perfection of his kids. That this would have been, you know, that, that Malus would have been a subject of shame. And I, I think it's really the only difference, you know, between him and Tyrion is, like, he was big enough that, like, he could fight back. Yeah. It's very hard to, like, torment someone who's, you know, seven foot tall and made of muscle and, you know, very willing to kill you. Yeah, if Tyrion could fight like Jamie, people would not be making fun of him nearly as much. Yeah. They, they would not call him half-man. They would, at least not to his face. Yeah, you wonder about that because with Tyrion, there's the notion that maybe Tywin would have had him killed on the quiet, uh, if, if not for, his, you know, his connection to Joanna. Obviously, Joanna didn't stop him because she was dead herself. But, you know, he might not want to kill a child of Joanna. But this consideration would be different for the Blackfires. I wonder if there was any thought of just, let's let this, leave this kid out for the wolves. This strange, like you said, if if they were embarrassed by it, but clearly they did not do this. Yeah, but it depends on how many male Blackfires did they have left. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it may have just been him and his cousin, in which case, you know, if anything happens to his cousin, he's the only one left. So and he might have been sterile too. Like look, with that, with all his genetic abnormalities, it wouldn't be surprising if he couldn't have kids of his own. Um, let alone <laughs> people wanting to that <laughs> someone would marry him, I suppose. But yikes! You really wonder whether Bittersteel would think it was a good thing or not, because I really do think it's very likely he was there for Melis's birth. I mean, he was meaning by there, I mean alive when it happened, because these yeah. Melis's death was only nineteen years after Bittersteel's death. We do know, too, it beyond this, like you said, for Westeros, the fact that it seems they could easily spin this as something bad, it's worse because people whisper that he was born a kinslayer. I mean, the idea that he consumed his own twin, well, all, everything except its head, is kind of a story that you could see how that would spread. And that is obviously a bad, bad thing because kinslaying is so, so taboo. And Westeros doesn't love cell swords either. And there wasn't much support for the fourth Blackfire Rebellion. So let's just say it's doubtful people were clamoring for King Maelys. And he probably didn't have any illusions about that. He knew that they weren't clamoring for him. He probably knew he'd have to take it by force. So yeah. in, in A Clash of Kings, Varys tells the council that a two-headed dragon has been born in Karth. Of course, this is Daenerys birthing her dragons. And, and Varys is, probably knows that. Well, he definitely knows that. He's just spinning it in a way to keep the attention away from them. When Maelys was born, the equivalent would have been a two-headed dragon being born in Tyrosh. They ignored the three-headed dragon rumor not taking it seriously, and I wonder if that's kind of what happened here, other than the the denigration and all that, because it sounds like, I mean, Prince Duncan is out here saying, nine, they're giving out nine, you know, kings nine a penny, but we're talking about later. Not The the nine-penny kings incident is later, the band of nine forming in in, in, uh, 258, 
is well past the time when Meles would have been born. So we're talking about two separate events. There would have been a reaction to his birth and then a reaction to him crowning himself. And I wonder if uh, this, you know, how that how things went from there. Any thoughts on that, Stephen? This is retcon is maybe slightly too strong a word, but there was a little bit of timeline adjustments. Yeah, because originally, like, you know, a lot in the fandom were left with the impression that Aegon V had been king during the Nine Pity Kings, and then we learned it was Jaehaerys. Yeah. And, you know, that always kind of slightly wrong-footed me because I thought the whole point was that, like, Egg, you know, seeing Egg growing up, witnessing the the Blackfire rebellions uh, and taking part in the earlier ones, that, like, this led to this decision to, like, rather than be on the defensive as the Targaryens had been in the first, questionably the second, (laughs) uh, because that's sort of a case of entrapment, Um, but (laughs) definitely like on the defensive in the third and fourth that like the decision to be like, no, this time we're going to stop them in the stepstones. We're not going to wait for it to hit Westeros. I always thought was like the, the learning, you know, policy learning. So the fact that it's Jaehaerys the second, you know, that we later learned who did that always kind of slightly wrong footed me, but it does sort of suggest that house Targaryen, as a whole, is sort of trying to be more decisive about this crisis, trying to put it to bed once and for all after, you know, at this point, you know, a generation of turmoil. It also gives the Blackfires a bit more of an opportunity because obviously with having, whether that was a a, a change or not, it, it certainly means now that Summerhall happens right before the yeah. nine penny kings take the stepstone. So it's kind of like, well, this might be them seeing their opportunity because there's a new regime. And like you say, Jaehaerys II, not a not a weakling in terms of his his mental fortitude, but not a warrior in terms of his physical abilities. He was he stayed home because he was not uh, capable of going on campaign. But you, like you say, he's the one that was gung-ho yeah. about that, taking the initiative. Yeah, that would fit a pattern. Like we've sort of seen, you know, not so much with the first. The first kind of happened by accident is is not a the the right word for it, but you know, the arrest warrant being set out for Damon uh the first sort of started the war kind of ahead of schedule. But like certainly we've seen in the later rebellions that the Blackfires wait for some sort of crisis, right? Whether it's the great spring sickness or the drought or an unpopular king, something like that Mm. to kind of, you know, give them an edge, Um, you know, and, you know, you can sort of see this, you know, you know, maybe this time it's like getting tips on horses for like gambling addicts. It's like, (laughs) you know, maybe this time, you know, I've got the, I've got the good scoop. Uh, I've got the inside line. That could be sort of a propaganda like a propaganda battle. The Westerosi would say, oh, look, Melis is born a kinslayer. He's got all these genetic flaws. It's clearly, he's clearly a bad omen for the Blackfires. And then they could turn around and say, oh yeah? Well, look at Summerhall. What does that say? What does that no, say definitely. about ominousness, y'all? <laughs> oh, and kinslaying. Yeah, and kinslaying. You just killed, you just killed your own dynasty there, Aegon. <laughs> so yeah, that's a, that's a pretty tough one. That's a tough sell. You can see that the propaganda battle is being pretty fierce on that side. And like you said, Aegon V wasn't 
worried too much about the Black Fires, maybe because of how weak the Fourth Rebellion was. I mean, he was there for that, and Dunk, his Kingsguard Lord Commander, fought in three of them and had so much to do there. So they may have just been, that may have been part of the reason why they weren't too worried about it. And it may have also been uh, a little bit of remembering that they took it too seriously during Blood Raven's time, maybe. A little of, we took it too seriously then, let's not yeah. overextend ourselves this time. Something like that. Lots of possibilities. And it's a, and it, to be fair to them, too, is in a world of swords and, and pirates and, and all these cutthroat-type individuals, expecting the Band of Nine to not succeed, I don't think that's a, too much of a gamble. I think that is sort of a reasonable expectation for a group of, of scumbags like that to turn on each other. But apparently, the, the, the long odds came out this time. So yeah, you mentioned that Melis, uh the killing of his own cousin to win the command of the Golden Company puts, to, puts any doubts to rest of whether he was a kinslayer by birth or not, because he certainly won after that point. And also, as you said, the, the nomination process may have changed for the Golden Company. That's really interesting, whether this was a one-time thing where Melis was like, look, you're a coward if you refuse to fight me, or if this was just something that they were trying to establish, like, a lot, maybe a lot of the other sellswords thought it was a good policy to have the strongest lead them. But clearly, as you pointed out, there is no way Harry Strickland <laughs> fought for command right. of the Golden Company. So something has either changed or either they either it was a temporary change or they changed back. So Yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I think that's a, a really good point, which is that like there's these dueling principles at work, right? Command by the strongest versus internal solidarity. Right, you don't kill your own comrades. Yeah, because you know if if you know as we've seen in the War of Five Kings, right, if succession is settled with knives, then it's very hard to limit it and sort of say, well, only once, you know, and then you have to <laughs> <Yeah>. stop. It's <laughs> like you know they, they may have decided like no, an election, and then that's it. <laughs> you know, we're just going to like limit any political conflict within the group. Because, you know, this is what it leads to. So it'd be really interesting. Just We should consider just briefly that George is, is going to be all Georgie with us here. And, and Pola, actually, Melis was well-spoken and uh, <laughs> all this other stuff that just he looked the way he did and had this reputation. Was brutal and savage, but there's a lot of, you know, oh, he's got this look, so his reputation is not what he entirely deserved, like Tyrion. Like Tyrion's a great example. Blood yeah. Raven. You know, these guys had reputations. They were dirty. They were nasty. They did brutal things. But the stories told about them are still pumped up a few degrees, if yeah, not more. I, you, you definitely get the sense that, like, he wasn't stupid. Like, yeah. you know, if, if there's one major difference between him and Gregor, it's like you get the sense there was a... Whether he was good with people, you know, he must have been good with people at some level. Otherwise, the band of, of nine would not have formed. Maybe like Robert uh, got good with people where they just were like, not charisma, but they knew they could follow him into battle. Yeah, of course, personality. But certainly there was a mind at work. Yes. He, he was thinking about what would he need to win this war in terms of like who was in the, the, the band of eight. And obviously, you know, when when we eventually get to the actual fighting itself, there is some interesting strategy going on. Yeah, that's a great point. I'll allude to that briefly. And what Stephen's referring to is the fact that they and uh, the Golden Company and the and the Blackfires in the past 
mostly went straight for King's Landing or tried to. And whereas this is not that sort of a campaign at all. But we'll, like Stephen said, we'll get to that a little later. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the, the interim time and maybe Maley's building his reputation. As we said, we don't know how old he was. It's hard to guess at that. My, I tend to lean towards the younger side because of his, you know, his size and brutality and all that. Just what just the advantage that gives him as a warrior. And and again, if if we were assuming that he took over the Golden Company by killing his cousin, let's say that was just a couple years before the Band of Nine was formed. It's possibly longer, but it couldn't be a whole lot longer. There's only 15 years or 17 years between the Band of Nine forming officially and the death of Bittersteel. So, and, and it's hard to imagine that Maylis didn't have command of the Golden Company for at least a little while, a year or two, if not more, to at least establish a rep, to at least prove he was capable to, you know, if these other guys are going to join him in this alliance, he had to show something besides a claim and, and a, you know, being good at fighting. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Cool. I mean, you know, especially if you're a mercenary, right? Yeah. You, you have to work all the time. Otherwise, you don't get paid. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not like you sort of, you take several years off between wars. It's like, no, you know, what are we, you know, who are we fighting for this season? Okay, you know, let's, let's go there and fight. So I imagine, you know, you would have had, you know, at least a few campaigning years under his belt by the time, you know, if not, why would anyone you know, agree to not just sort of work with him, but like take this huge gamble. Yeah, backing him for an invasion of Wester. I mean, that is huge. Like the only time that's been done was with Aegon the Conqueror and dragons. I mean, this is a major, major undertaking. So yeah, you got to really have, people really got to have confidence in you. That's why I, I entertain the notion that he was actually somehow like good at speaking or or anything like that. Imagine him being the son of the Aenys that was killed by Bloodraven, the one who tried to convince the Seven Kingdoms to give him the crown. <laughs> Maybe he was that guy's son and actually had some upbringing that involved eloquence and learning how to speak well. But of course, we're just spitballing here. There is nothing specifically to point us in that direction. It is just within the realm of possibility. And that is it. So let's talk about some of the other eight members of the band. Actually, let's not do that real quick. Let's see. Let's, let's talk about a few questions. that we, let's, let's handle a few Q&A stuff here. Oh, my goodness. Look at his what look what is said in the QA. I just scrolled to our QA section here, Stephen. Chloe, Ketchum, and Emmett have gotten engaged. Yes, I, I just saw that. I, I took a second to to uh wish them well on Twitter. That is awesome. Well, congrats to Emmett Booth of Not a Cast and Chloe of Girls Gone Canon and Drunk ASOIF History, who are also our, our friends. We've hung out many times. That is awesome. Yeah. Can we also chalk this up to a win for Ice and Firecon. Yes, Ice Sean, and Firecon. Sean and Rita also met there, and they're also engaged. Yes. So, <laughs> if you're looking for your l- nerdy love interest, come to Ice and Firecon. <laughs> it's my new ad for it. <laughs> That's a good ad for it. That is a very good sell, uh, salesmanship job there. And yeah, uh, Chloe is in charge of marketing, so now she knows to be like, I, I found my fiance. <laughs> So yeah, if you are interested in going to Ice and Firecon, here's the sales pitch too. We, you can get $5 off your ticket by using the uh, code HISTORY on your ticket price. Go to iceandfirecon.com and go to the store and see us there. So, well, that was a fun little distraction. That was really cool. But let's, let's go to the, the, the questions that are on topic here. 
from Pat Doherty, who made this shirt, Blood Raven shot first that I'm wearing. He is a very much a fan of the Black Dragon side of things. So he wants to know if Maylise's condition says anything about the Black Flame theories. Now, before you answer, Stephen, I'll explain real quickly for those of, of us who don't know what Black Flame means. And also, I have my own thing to wrap up into this question. So let's have a little fun here. Black Flame, also called Bright Flame, or is rather related to Bright Flame, is, is a reference to Arian, as in Arian, the one named Bright Flame, or Arian Brightfire. He has two different nicknames. That's the guy who drank wildfire when he was drunk, and it, of course, killed him. He had spent some time in the Free Cities, in particular least. He was, of course, sent, sent there uh, on exile after the Hedge Knight. And there are, because of the kind of guy he was, there are theories that he may or may not have sired a few bastards of his own. And if those bastards were out there, they may have been become, they either may have become someone important or become part of the Golden Company, been scooped up by these dynastic agents wanting to grab that bloodline. And thus, you get the combination of Black Flyer and Bright Flame in the name Black Flame. So that's just a fan-made name, of course. But I wonder, uh, yeah, so we, we should consider all that in light of this, whether we, because you, you brought this up, Stephen, the idea that they may have been trying to play like the Targaryens and, and keep their dynasty pure, in a sense. If there was some Targaryen blood out there, they may have tried to abscond with it. Uh, in this case, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, because uh, the way that World of Ice and Fire talks about Aryan Bright Flame's actions during the Third Rebellion. They would not you know, be a fan of his, would they? Yeah, I mean, I get the sense that, like, if he didn't personally wield the knife to kill Hagon, then he was very much involved in that. So, you know, that's always kind of been my problem with the this particular theory, is just that, like, no, like, if the, you know, if the Golden Company don't like Targaryens, they especially aren't going to like this asshole. Yeah, (laughs) that is very true. So, but the other thing I wanted to work into this is the idea of the the kind of parallel concept of Melis's interesting, unusual deformity in light of the deformities that have occurred, mutations that occurred in the Targaryen line. Of course, I refer to Rago and Melis or Megor's many strange progeny, and then the example of little Visenya, Rhaenyra's kid. And I wonder if that's sort of a thematic parallel. Do you think there's anything to that, Stephen? Yeah, well, you know, it's um, it's a little unclear because, you know, I don't think, like, George is getting out of Punnett Square. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> out, you know, the, the, you know, genetic load or, or any of this. It, it's more that just, like, you get the sense that, like, Targaryen deformity is more about, like, the spirit within. Yeah. Right, that, you know, people of bad character, you know, it, it comes out in. So that may be what's going on with with Nalus that like, and, and this is why I, I, I made the comparison to Richard III is because Thomas Moore wrote a, a book about Richard in which he argued that like Richard was born sinful. Yes. He was born a murderer, right? Even before he, he ever killed anybody. And you sort of get that idea with with Malus that like he was born having already in some sense committed uh you know the the most sort of you know primal of sins. 
Yeah, certain aspects of his personality were defined for him when he was still a baby without actually yeah. earning or, or deserving them. Yeah. Yep, that's very true. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting point about the, the particular Targaryens that have had these issues with their children. And of course, bringing up Daenerys in that light is a touchy subject, but <laughs> no doubt that it's, it's a possibility. And it also brings us another parallel, which is that if Magor was very clearly sterile uh, or near sort of sterile, pseudo-sterile, and Daenerys now can't, was told she can't bear kids. And now we have this same thing, the idea that maybe Maelys couldn't have kids because of, well, people with lots of mutations like that are often sterile. That's just the way the world seems to work, genetics and biology. But uh, so that's just, you know, maybe some thematic ties together there. Speaking of the genetics here, or not genetics, but more of a lineage, a couple questions from Matt Rees. Um, he says, I would like to know who was Damon III's father and who was Maelys's father from Damon I's five surviving sons. Any guesses? And, well, I think oh. that... Hey, I wonder about this. It's tough because I wonder Hagon, when it was killed, after he surrendered, after he yielded, you wonder if he had had kids before. Whether he had... I, I, I kind of guess he, there's a decent chance he did because... It's pretty normal before a king goes off to war to fire an heir and kind of take care of that. Damon III is listed as Hagon's eldest son. Right. So that means that he had at least two. Yes. He probably didn't name them both Damon. So it's unlikely the second one was this this cousin Damon that Bittersteel or that uh, Maelys killed for command of the Golden Company. So there's a lot of possibilities. That is, it is difficult to track these possibilities down because there are so many. There's yeah. seven Blackfire sons from Damon, and yeah, and know. we know there's the whole business with like Anus technically, uh, Anus Blackfire technically jumping the the Blackfire line. Yes, that's true. Um, when he put himself forward at the Great Council of uh, 233. Which fits in really interestingly with my little Anis is the father of Magor theory or Maley's theory because if, if he kind of figured his father had already done that, he's like, well, I deserve this. My father already took <laughs> the front spot. I don't know. That's, that's, that's a little bit of a stretch, but it fits anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, the, you know, the truth is just like the House Blackfire uh, family tree is really, is just riddled with unknowns. Yeah, really, really unknown. Um, I, I think like just a couple more, like one or two firm dates would do a lot for us. We could work because the extrapolations were kind of stuck. And but like one or two firm dates would would enable us to extrapolate a lot more, I think, or at least to or it could just spin us out of control and give us even more possibilities. You never know. Uh, so Matt Reese also asked, maybe after Bittersteel, leadership might have devolved to whomever was the Blackfire pretender. Then after Maelys, they went to election. Yeah, that's entirely possible that because Bittersteel had such a tight grip on it for so long that after him, uh, maybe he didn't do a great job of, of naming a successor to, the, to his own, you know. That is an interesting thing because, you know, uh, Bittersteel was so involved in... You know, he really was the sort of Blackfire kingmaker. Yeah, and he didn't die suddenly, right? He died, we know he, on yeah. his deathbed, he commanded them to do that stuff with his yeah, skull. So he had a chance to name a successor. And, you know, he was very clearly saying like, okay, no, not Damon II. You know, I want Hagon instead. Um, you know, not, you know, so so he was very much like, he was not sort of faithfully following any line of, succession, he was sort of saying, 
who I think is the best uh, person for the job. So an interesting possibility. Did he name a claimant? What happened after he died? Was there any, inf- you know, because it's, it, it's not like you, you never see infighting within political exile communities. Like nothing is more poisonous and more bitter than <laughs> like people who are on the outs, you know, fighting over, you know, some, you know, completely abstract claim to power. And of course, we've got plenty of examples of, you know, Robert, Robert and Cersei slash Viserys II, they name their heir and then everybody just throws that out. <laughs> like, nope, you, your, your, your piece of paper is not who we're going to go with here. J17, any chance we'll find out more about Melee's in a sell me chapter in wins? I think there's a very good chance of that, especially because George has mentioned Melee's in light of Tyrion and we're, we're really getting into this whole young Griff plot line. So I would bet Fairly strongly on that. I'm maybe I'm hope maybe I'm too hopeful for it, but I think that there's a That's very good how long Sir Barristan's with us. Yes, that is a good question. Yeah, Jace also asked, "Do you think Agor dismissed Damon the Second's claim due his due to probably uh, due to his sexuality?" I think there's a good chance he did, but I think there's that probably wasn't the only reason because there's if you look at the the way the second quote unquote rebellion plays out, there's clearly other issues with Damon the <laughs> Second, not just I don't think his. Uh, his homosexuality is a, would really be a big deal. I mean, it could be to Agor, obviously. Yeah, it, who I knows mean, what know, Agor thinks? But the way that like the Westerosi tend to talk about it, yeah, where they're sort of like, you know, look, as long as you sire an heir, no one really cares what you do in private. Yeah, um, the TV show gave I, people the wrong impression about how much Westeros seems to care about yeah, that. I, I think it's more that just like Damon really was kind of more mystical. Yeah, and thought that he was going to first dragons and you know that's how he was going to win that seems far more problematic i mean homosexuality isn't problematic at all but (laughs) but also from from a personal standpoint right bitter steel's lifelong oldest enemy is like the sorcerer oh good point he doesn't trust that like yeah yeah i i think he'd he'd look at 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 damon the second and say like no this i am not like nurturing another blood raven in my own camp, this guy is a, a dreamer and a madman. I want someone, you know, an, a good practical warrior like yeah. his older brothers. The guy who thinks he's going to be king because he dreamt it is not, yeah, that's not something you can, you can put a lot of military backing behind without some proof. And there was none. <laughs> there was a, he had his dreams, but there was no, oh, these dreams are coming true. And we, this is something we talked about in our earlier Blackfire coverage, whether he had proved himself with any of his dreams or not. And, and the fact that Bitterstill didn't back him kind of argues that he hadn't. Because if his dreams had been proven to come true, then I would argue that maybe Bittersteel would be like, eh, this guy, his dreams are coming true, so maybe we should back him. But because of the Bloodraven point you just made, maybe not. Maybe he was just so against any of that stuff that he would just, I don't want to get involved in any of that magical stuff. Maybe he's got like a Varus type attitude about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, let's give some shout outs here. Appropriately enough, for this episode, we'll do some shout-outs for our sellsword captains. That seems to fit, right? That is uh, appropriate for an episode featuring so many sellswords. Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle is captain of the Werewood Wanderers to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron is marshal of the Axe, captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Kyron Callsbane, captain of the Stone Shields. The torrent breaks upon the stone. Hema Helminth, captain of the Whispering Children. Dead men tell no secrets. Shepard, his son, the Shepard of Essos. All men are sheep before the shepherd, heir to the whispering children. 
Lady Lajara Dajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows, Women and Children First. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron is the Hammer of Hornwood, Captain of the English Lions. Their motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune is Captain of the Shadow Wolves. Their motto, Our Steel is Cold, Our Vengeance Colder. Black Alex Sand is the Bastard of Spears and leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. Bitter Steel is Captain General of the Golden Company. Beneath the gold, the Bitter Steel and our word is good as gold. They get two mottos. That's how cool they are. Also, I want to give shout outs to our Queens of Love and Beauty. I'm determined to get it right this time. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer is declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered a dark sister from beyond the wall. And a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. And last but not least, our Blood Rider patrons, Vorsaki, wielder of a Valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt, Kohal Cully called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, and Kakavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. I think, Steven, since the last time we've had you on, you now have a patron. I don't think you had one the last time we did. So why don't yeah. you give that a shout out? Uh, okay, so, yeah, uh, I have a, a patron. It's been going for, God, uh, almost a better part of a year now. I feel, um, I feel like you launched in May? Was that right? Yeah, or? something like that. And uh, it's got a, a number of uh, levels of benefits. So if you join at the $1 for fellows level, you just get uh, access to the patron feed, which gives uh, early access to bonus content. If you join at the uh, $5 Brotherhood Without Banners level, Get a sh- you get uh, a shout-out at the end of every essay. If you join at the Team Small Folk level of $10 a month, uh, you also get a guaranteed uh, ask per month where, like, you know, I do regular uh, answering people's asks on social media, and I put them together in posts, and you get to ask a question on any topic you want. If you join at the Small Council level of $25 or more a month, uh, you can suggest topics for future historical analysis essay sections because every time I write about a chapter, I come up with a historical topic. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then, I know the feeling. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then my uh, secret inner council at $50 or more a month uh, is privy to all of my schemes and machinations, uh, including to, uh, when I eventually get around to it, early access to my first original novel. Oh, you're writing a novel. I will be doing. I'm currently in the research project. Oh, very uh, cool. Phase the project. Do you want but, to give uh, a little teaser about what it's about, or is it not really? Uh, sure. It's going to be set in uh, Renaissance Bruges, and oh. it's about a sort of, uh, a, in you know, a fantasy version of Renaissance Bruges. Uh, basically, an Italian mercenary comes to Bruges and uh, tries to make his fortune. Cool. Sounds great. I will definitely read that. That sounds right up my alley. Yes, I just have to to write it. Yeah. Uh, my, my, <laughs> my plan at the moment is to, uh, you know, because like at the moment I've got this like 20 page like planning document and I'm using Zotero for all of my research, but like uh, I'm going to do basically NaNoWriMo uh, this coming year Nice. and just uh, try to bang out like a a first draft. Very cool. Well, good luck with that. That sounds excellent. I hope you uh, you. make make great progress this year. Let's get back to it. The other eight members of the band of nine, we haven't, I don't know if we've mentioned any of them by name yet. Uh, we'll start off by a quick primer. Um, I've 
you sometimes see the word sellsword company, you sometimes see the word free company. As best as I can tell, that's the same thing. Do you, do you interpret that differently? Do you know otherwise? So the free companies, I think, uh, let me just remind myself, are specifically the ones uh, in Essos. Okay. And they, they, they emerge out of the, the, the free cities. Okay. So I think it's just a contraction, right? Free cities company. Okay. Uh, into free companies. That makes sense. Um, but uh, the, you know, I think the difference is basically like they're not individual mercenaries, right? And they're not these sort of like temporary, you know, clumping together of broken men or bandits or whatever. They are these permanent, inst- or not permanent, but these long lasting institutions that have these like charters and they sign contracts with city-states that are more based on these like historical capital C mercenary companies. I thought maybe it had something to do with the, the type of commitment they made to the company, but I, I, apparently I was wrong. I thought maybe, for example, the or, certain, or certain companies have, sign a contract and if you leave, they'll cut your foot off yeah, or something. But that may have to do with it. Or, or it could be, you know, a, another possibility is that like free company, i.e. free of political... Influence, right? They don't belong to a given state. They are mm. not subjects of a any one city, um, or you know, in, in you know, the case of like Westerosi mercenaries, right? You know, subjects of a king. You know, the the Golden Company is a law unto itself. Right on. Okay. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So the other eight members of the band, and the reason we brought that up is because there's a lot of sellsword slash free company commanders in this group, as well as pirates. It's a very interesting group, and that doesn't describe all of them. They're not all pirates and sellswords, but that is a large chunk of them. So, well, one of the things we tried to do is kind of figure out where some of them came from. Some of them we do know. Some of them we we know because of their name gives it away. Uh, we're wondering things like, and we also wonder what they expected. What is their reward? As in, the the goal of the Band of Nine was to carve out kingdoms for each other. And, well, no one could possibly have gotten a kingdom as large as the one Melis wanted. There's no, nothing else was on the board as a prize as large as Westeros. So, the uh, one of them was Alico Adaris. We'll talk about him in a minute in more detail. But he wanted Tyrosh, and he got it. But the rest of the band, it's not clear both what they wanted and whether or not any of them got it, because, uh, well, probably they didn't get it. The only other place they conquered was the Disputed Lands, which may have been what one of them wanted for his own territory or hers. Anyway, so we're wondering if any of them maybe wanted Bravos or Pentos. I mean, that kind of thing we see. For example, mm-hmm. who is it? Uh, the, the, the Tattered Prince, his reward for backing Danny is he wants Pentos. And obviously, this is a kind of thing that you would expect to not be uh, so unique. We wonder if anyone came or wanted the Basilisk Isles or something like that. Mm-hmm. We see co- commanders and, and pirate captains setting themselves up in places like that. As far as we know, there's no connection to Volantis or the farther east. Like I'm, None of these Band of Nine seem to be associated with, say, Slaver's Bay or Yt or Ashai or anything like that. But you never know because these aren't people who necessarily establish themselves in their own country. Some of them also came from Westeros, very clearly. So let's go through them one at a time. The, the first one uh, is the old mother. She apparently is the one woman in the group, although some there's the possibility of one other, I suppose. So to me, that name, she's a pirate, and that reminds me of the Chinese pirate in real life, Ching Shi, who is the most successful yeah. pirate of all time. 
But that is literally, and just like Ching Shi, we get very little about the old mother. The real sources tell us very little about Ching Shi, even though she was only like 200 years ago. But uh, old mother, eh, I don't know. Uh, what do you, any, any thoughts on the old mother? Pirate suggests, so probably somewhere coastal, right? Yeah. You know, un- unlikely to be one of the Yogosnai, <laughs> uh, even though they are matriarchs. Um, one possibility is, uh, just reminding myself, uh, like Leng, mm, uh, just okay. because that is a more uh, matriarchal society. Yeah, that's a good call. I didn't think of that. Uh, and obviously that would fit Qingxi, mm-hmm. uh, right? You know, more Eastern than the rest. Yeah. Uh, but, we, you know, again, we're, we're working with scraps here. Scrap, total scrap. Yeah, Qingxi inherited her, uh, basically kind of her husband was the pirate lord and and when he died, she took over, and which is unusual that someone else didn't step up or attack her. Or if they did, she defeated them. So uh, it's not to say that's how this woman rose through the ranks. It could be she did it on her own. But there, it is uh, unusual to see a woman rise so high amongst a very male-dominated uh, profession of piracy. Um, there's all sorts of superstitions about women being on board, things like that, which some of which probably exist in Essos and Westeros as well as in the real world. They're not so prominent nowadays, but they were back in the day on in, in the, on our planet. But like he says, like Stephen says, there's not a whole lot we can we can say here that isn't just guesswork. Samaro San is another pirate yeah. lord. We can say more about him because that name is very familiar, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, we know the sons. Yep. So he's is Salador's family. We also have we also know of a Sathos son, and this is why I brought up the Basilisk Isles because Sathos son was king of the Basilisk Isles, and he was active not too long before this. I mean, it could have been as much as two hundred years before, but we're not talking like many, many hundreds of years ago. And it seems like Samaro son was defeated in the Stepstones by Magor the Cruel and Athan Velaryon and some of these other guys. So. It, there's some chance that this is what uh, Samaro-san wanted, was either the Bessel Skiles or the Stepstones. What do you think about, the, or Lease, possibly, because that's where they come from. What yeah. do you think about Samaro? So, one thing that's interesting about Samaro-san is his nickname. Mm. That separates him out a little bit from the rest of his family. He called himself the Last Valerian. Right? That's interesting. And, you know, you mentioned that, like, none of these people seem to have come from Volantis. It's possible he wanted Volantis. Ooh, last right? Valerian. Because the, the, yeah. the Volantines like see themselves and talk about themselves as like the most Valerian of Valerian. Yes. So it's possible that like Samaro San, you know, if he thought of himself as like more Valerian than anyone else, would have been like, great, I'll take that. <laughs> right? I, I, I can live inside the black walls. I can you know, rule this enormous empire and, you know, that's, you know, you can't rule Valyria itself unless you want to die by, you know, horrible worm things and <laughs> demons. Uh, but, you know, closest thing, right? Yeah, definitely. That's a great guess. Yeah, I like that. Um, the whole last Valyrian title is very evocative and you wonder because it's like, well, yeah, Solidor is not calling himself anything like that. He doesn't really refer to himself or that aspect of his heritage much at all. It's It's, it's inferred. We learn... Yeah. Well, after Clash of Kings, I think that that, that about the Lyseni connection, I think it maybe. Although he does call himself to. Prince of the Narrow Sea, that's true. Um, that's so true. there is this like tendency among the San family to like hunger for for royal title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wonder because Salador is still out there. I mean, he's not currently not associated with any of the major factions. He is a faction of his own right now. 
that's probably not going to maintain. There's, he'll probably take a side again, and there's an opportunity for him to maybe mention more about his family or anything like that. So I'm hoping that Salador drops mm-hmm. a few paragraphs about his, his own family now that George has expanded on them so much because this was not the kind of expansion on a family that we expected. <laughs> There's so many sons have popped up over the, all, the, all over the extra secondary sources here. It's, it's pretty fun. Uh, let's talk about Jobar Jacua, which is almost certainly not how to pronounce it, but whatever. AKA the Ebon Prince. That's a much easier thing to say. So this guy was a Summer Islander and the Summer Islander, one thing Summer Islanders know very well Sailing. Another thing they know pretty well is archery. Not to assume that he is either of those things, but it's a good start for a guess. So, of course, a, a comp for this guy is uh, Jalabar Joe, who is an exile prince at court. Yeah. What do you think about Zobar Jacua here? So, the interesting thing, or Jacua. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is, like, for a place that it, that, you know, Martin clearly sort of sees as like almost paradise in nature. It does seem to have this nasty tendency of producing exiled princes who want <laughs> to retake their lands by force. So I would not be surprised because, you know, it's not a very long sail from the Stepstones to the Summer Isles. If that's what he wanted, he just needed an army to get back home uh, in style, as it were. And we know that Jamie particularly interested in the stories about this guy, there's a, there's a passage where Jamie is, is, when he's getting ready to meet with Blackfish and have their parlay, he thinks of how when he first met Blackfish, he was, you know, there was talk of him marrying Lysa Tully or being engaged to Lysa Tully. That never happened, but it was sort of a, a thing and they were, they were sat next to each other. And Jamie remembers how he completely ignored Lysa because he wanted to talk to Brendan about Nailis the Monstrous and the Ebon Prince. He mentions those two specifically. Yeah, well, in that case, even though Summer Islanders are better known for archery, maybe he was a very good swordsman. Uh, that's true, uh, because Jamie has a disdain know, for bows. You're right. Well, and also that a young Jamie was absolutely obsessed with swords. That was the only thing he was really interested that's in. That's a great point, yeah. Um, and this guy so was probably maybe, a sellsword captain, which means probably... He had an opportunity. Yeah. You know. That's a great point. I like that guess a lot. So, I, so I, and the fact that, uh, yeah, maybe those were the two best swordsmen of the batch. That might be a subtle hint that because Jamie was just interested in nothing but swords, especially that. I mean, he wasn't interested in much by the time he came of age, but, but when he was, you know, seven years old or whenever that was, he must have been super hyper-focused on this. So, yeah, that's a great theory. I like that a lot. The idea that, that the Eben Prince was, a, was an excellent swordsman. You had a good theory on this next one as well. Lyamond Lashar, whose nickname is the Lord of Battles. Also a sellsword captain, that much is confirmed. You'd think a name like that would imply significant experience, maybe more on the command side rather than... Yeah, the, I was going to say a tactician yeah, as opposed to a warrior. A clever strategist. And you you suggest that he might be Lysine because of that name. Lashar is kind of like Rogar. And yeah, it's, I agree it's the same sort of constructions. I mean, you know, look, if if it's Valyrian in nature, it could be any of the free cities, but there is a certain, uh, you know, and, and this gets rather difficult because, right, they all can't pick the same territory, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the whole way that this thing works is each of them pick a territory uh, and agree that they'll, um, they'll take it for themselves. If, if he's Lysini, you know, maybe Samarosan didn't want Lys and, you know, that's the way it goes. But, you know, it, it is interesting. It definitely sort of 
Lord of Battles has a ring to it. You wonder, maybe he's the engineer of their their strategy, their campaign strategy. It might have been him who said, yeah, let's take let's take the Disputed Lands first, then we'll take Tyrosh, then we'll go for the Stepstones, and then we'll go for Westeros, and then Westeros will empower us to do all these other things, which... That is a decent plan, I guess. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of a lot of details to work out, but the idea of making Westeros the the base for seizing all these other kingdoms, well, that you can see the logic in that because if you have the power of Westeros, it shouldn't be that hard to take some of these smaller kingdoms that are relatively independent. The next one is the other one who might be. There's a chance this one's female because there's no name here. It's just Nine Eyes. Cell sword captain, maybe it's a cell sail fleet because they're they're called the Jolly Fellows, which that does sound very piratic. Yeah, it really does. So, and cell sail fleets are a thing. We don't see, I don't think we've seen one too up close, other than Saul or Sans, which is pretty much that is what he's doing with it. He's the only one who gets a, a well, yeah. I mean, he's the only one who gets a name, a name that isn't without a real name. Like we have, well, no, the old mother. That's also yeah. We don't know. I her mean, real I meant in in the in the main Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, I see. Okay. And yeah, so you're right. You mean, you mean out of Cell Sail, Captain? I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, I wonder, like, Nine Eyes, you know, I, I get more of a Basilisk Skiles feel here. Mm, okay. Just because, like, Nine Eyes, it's almost like, um, it's almost like Wildling. Like, mm. it, you know, that, or or like the clan, you know, the, the mountain clans of the, the mountains of the moon. Yeah. Like, it, it's not a, a, a civilized Valyrian name. It's not <laughs> Summer Islander. It's not Westerosi. This sounds like something else. His given name isn't something that apparently he thinks would help make him famous, I guess. Like, yeah, if he had some sort of Valyrian sounding name, that would probably be a part of his shtick. But uh, apparently maybe his name is, is, is not important. So next up we have one of the Westerosi. So this one's pretty important. Mm-hmm. Spotted Tom the Butcher. Now, anyone named the Butcher is generally not a nice fellow. Uh, yeah. So you have a theory on where he might have come from. And I like I like this theory a lot, too. Yeah. So um, this is a theory, the Santagars of Spotswood. Mm-hmm. As in Aaron um, Santagar, who was, uh, of course, yes. important for uh, in the early parts of, of the Song of Ice and Fire. And, you know, their sigil is a spotted leopard. And, you know, they 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 are the knights of Spotswood. So it's like Spots is very much a thing, you know, for them. So, you know, it's possible he is a uh, a bastard Ooh. instead of a full-blood Santagar. Yeah. Um, the other thing that makes me lean towards uh, Santagar is that if you look at where the Spotswood is... Um, it's pretty close to the lands of the Ironwoods. Yeah. Who were the, we know they were Black, uh, Blackfire loyalists. And, you know. Good point. We're, we're ride or die many times. So the idea that their uh, vassals would have come along with that, strong possibility. You know, we know that like, you know, from World of Ice and Fire and Fire and Blood and all that, that like the, Dornish settle internal politics very violently, you know, Westerosi <laughs> do. So it doesn't seem impossible to me that, you know, he wound up on the wrong side of some blood feud or coup de, you know, failed coup or something. Yeah. And that's how you end up with a name like The Butcher. That's a great theory. Now, I have my own little theory to add on to this, which is that I figure, given the timeline, 
you, this this spot of time, the butcher, probably not a really old man. Maybe you never know. Probably not though. Uh, probably more middle age ish, young on the younger side, but not young young. And the reason for that is, well, that's just a typical age for for ambitious warrior types. It's hard to be a really old guy leading uh, a campaign to yeah. take a throne or something the, like the that. The bold sword, yeah, and the bold soul. Exactly. Like some, there are exa- there are exceptions. Tattered Prince is a perfect one, but he is an exception, to be clear. So my guess is that he was exiled during Egg's time, during Egg on the fifth time, because Egg had been king for twenty five years mm-hmm. when the band pledged beneath Tree of Crowns to to become this band of nine. Yeah, and, to, and, and, and that also fits because you know we know from the reigns of Castamere that Egg put an unusual amount of emphasis into royal law enforcement on the local level. Mm. So, yeah. you know, it's it's quite possible that sort of he was involved in some local feud and then, you know, Aegon V said, nope, royal justice is going to be brought against you when he fled to Essos and joined up with the Blackfires because, like, you know, fuck you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, so... And that brings us to another connection to Duncan Egg, which is Derek Fossaway. Sir, excuse me. Sir Derek Fossaway, a.k.a. The Bad Apple. I love this nickname. It's <laughs> the so bad good. Apple. Yeah. <laughs> Don't throw out the whole bunch because of one bad apple. But no, he's, of course, a Fossaway. And then the Fossaways are like a microcosm of Blackfire Targaryen. And, and they happen during the Duncan Egg series in, in, the, in the Hedge Knight. We see the formation of the green apple fossilways breaking off from the red apple fossilways. And this guy is like some third sort of branch of his own, in a sense. And of course, you have a sigil that is, by changing the color, you represent this cadet branch, which is obviously exactly what the Blackfires do to represent their connection to the Targaryens. So this just is a a nice little... George is having fun with this one, I think. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't know a whole lot about him other than him being a knight. And the interesting point here is that unlike all these other characters, he's not necessarily a sellsword captain. He might be, but he's not listed as one. He's a knight with an ill repute, which is, well, he must be more than just that. A knight, like some nasty knight, doesn't sound like he's on the same level as a sellsword captain or a pirate lord or Maylis the Monstrous. So this guy had to have something else going for him yeah, that I maybe mean, isn't mentioned. Th- this could be another example of like some of these people are more kind of organizational, right? They run an organization. Yeah. Others, it may be more about who they are as people individually. Mm. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you see with uh, the first rebellion, not so much the second, third, fourth, is Damon the first liked to have famous knights around him. Mm. That was a big part of kind of burnishing his image. Yeah. So, you know, if Derek Fossaway was a a knight who was very good at the sort of the martial side of things, but not so good at sort of keeping to his oath and, <laughs> you know, the the more chivalric side of things, you know, you could see someone like Melis the Monstrous being like, you know, hey, you know, I need knights around me if I want to be a king, but, you know, this is the kind of knight that appeals to me as this kind of, you know, distrusted, despised figure. A typical part of a conspiracy slash cartel like this would be someone who is strong in intelligence. I don't mean like a smart guy. I mean like 
spy stuff, right? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly, especially by this point, right? It had been so long since the Black Fires were on Westerosi soil and had a real following. Yeah. I mean, really not since the third... You, you really get the sense that the Third Rebellion was like the high water mark. Yes. That was the closest they got since the first. That, you know, they needed someone who knew the the political scene in Westeros. You know, and it's also, you know, one of the things that I think we should keep our eyes for is like, who are the Golden Company's friends? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's and exactly where the, I was going with this. Yes, I'm glad you picked that up. Yeah, and the Fossaways are, are, uh, are good options although you know they're lothor brun unfortunately swept a lot of them off the board (laughs) (laughs) he sure did apple that is unfortunate (laughs) the apple leader yeah so that's a great theory because we definitely they definitely need that in their group they need people that have connections to westeros because as you say they those connections have fallen off over the years the the bitter steel loyalists are probably gone uh, or at least the ones that he had connected to oh yeah i mean like a whole you know at least one generation, if not two, have now passed. Yeah. And that's part of why so this is a re- conquest, not a rebellion. That's why some people call it. It's, it's sometimes referred to as the Fifth Black Fire Rebellion. That's kind of a misnomer. But then again, so is the second. <laughs> but this is more of yeah, a conquest. I mean, you know, even compared, like, the Second Rebellion was a failure on a military level. But, yeah. like, you you know, the one thing you could say is, like, Damon II actually did have some powerful Westerosi houses backing his play. Yeah. Here, yeah. it seems like entirely... Nothing doing west of the Narrow Sea. Yeah, this is more like what the Golden Company is doing right now, where they are coming in during chaos, and they're gonna if they look strong, people will follow them because they don't want to fight them. <laughs> and so that might be the case here. Someone like Derek Fossaway, guys like that, are, are planning that strategy and looking for to subvert or bribe or look for people they can turn and find like offers. Uh, like, let's say you join us now and we'll make you king, uh, Lord Paramount of the Reach. Things like that. Betray the Tyrells. And you know, the same exact thing is happening. The Friends in the Reach thing that we're talking about with that, that is, comes up so often with Young Griff. Like, who is going to support the Golden Company in the Reach now? Like, is, is it the Rowans? Is it the Tarleys? Etc. That's the kind of thing. And it's interesting, again, that this is a house of the Reach. The Fossilways are a Reach house. So again, that is where the prime support for the Blackfires was. And even if that's fallen off a lot, that's still, you'd think that's still the place they would start again to look for help. If, yeah. Unless something else obvious popped up elsewhere. And of yeah, course, they would do the both. Natural. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, Ironwood, like you said, Ironwood, they were super tight with the Blackfires, one of the most important major houses that had a recurring connection to them. And... So, like, thinking about places like that, that, you know, maybe this, uh, maybe Fossaway had some sort of connection to them. Less likely, but possible. Did you guys mention Franklin Flowers? Franklin Flowers is a good example. Actually, yes. we didn't. Let's um, talk about him, actually. Just because uh, Everett Cooper brought that up. The brown apple Fossaway. <laughs> that's a, that's a, actually a very good point. So, to remind us of who that was, Franklin Flowers is a member of the Golden Company, current member of the Golden Company, and he's someone that uh, remembered Connington, someone that's been in there for a while. The Bastard of Cider Hall. Mm -hmm. Although, he's he's an interesting case because he came over uh, seemingly, you know, because he has this, like, you know, immediate grudge against the Fossaways. Uh, And it's a little bit, you know, he reminds me a lot of, like, Raleigh Duckfield. (laughs) Yes, yes. Where it's like, they've got this, like, 
very close. This is not a thing where like he inherited this thing from his father and his father and his father who like, you know, kept the banners in secret, and like passed down the story of, you know, the rightful king over the waves. Like, no, he's got a grudge and he's like looking for someone who can empower him to, to deal with his grudge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you wonder, it's a chance that he's even a descendant of, of uh, Derek Fossaway, a bastard of Derek yeah, Fossaway. It's, it, it's tricky because the there's also this whole tendency among the modern Golden Company to lie about your ancestry. True. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that really, like, are there muds? Are there, you know, like... <laughs> Peaks you know, and all, all these, of these ones, like yeah. ancient, you know, strong spider like, or Weber. Know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Strong. Yeah, that's got to be a lie. The strong has got to be a lie. Yeah. But, so but this like, one. Yeah. And, but, but this guy, um, Franklin, Franklin Flowers seems to have a, a grudge because he says, as long as I get to kill some fossilways, maybe that's just something he worked himself up over, but it sounds like it's personal to him. Yeah. So that's interesting. Okay. Then Alico Adaris, the last one, his nickname was the silver tongue. He's a merchant prince, which sets him apart from the rest because none of the others are merchant princes. You can, you can argue that merchant princes and, and pirates start to have some things in common after a while. But uh, I do imagine him a, a lot like when I think of a, a comp for him, I think of Zaro Zoandaxos. Does that kind of where your oh, head goes as well? I, uh, actually, I thought of Illyrio. Okay, yeah, that does like, fit, yeah. If we're, if we're thinking of the Band of Nine, like... Ocean's Eleven, like their heist crew. He's definitely the money. Yeah, he's the money. That's true. Right, and it you know other people are like the the brawn or the the brains or whatever. Uh, He's definitely the money, you know. Because hey, if you want to fight a war, one of the many many things you're going to need is a lot of financial resources. Because you know, arms and armor cost money, horses cost money, food costs money, clothing costs money. Ships cost money, supplies cost money. You need all of that stuff, especially if you know you're going to launch this incredibly complicated amphibious assault on Westeros. Yeah, not to mention their plans after Westeros, right? They're going to need to yeah. conquer all these other kingdoms, whichever kingdoms they had their sights on, whether it was Volantis, Lys, Summer Isles, who knows? But it was something, and that is a, a you're right. That requires a huge outlay of cash to get going. So that also fits really well with the procession of events, which we'll get into more detail uh, later. But the fact is, they first took this, the disputed lands, uh, which we'll, like also we'll talk about in more detail later. But they next took Tyrosh, which is what Alico wanted, and he's the one that held on to his take from the Band of Nine longest. He's the one that fell last after all of them. And, yeah. and he got Tyrosh. And so Tyrosh was kind of became their base of operations in a sense. And it makes sense that the guy that's funding things would get his money and his goal taken care of kind of early on, right? That, yeah. that fits. Like pay the, pay the backer back his money. And, and very noticeably, he didn't go to the Stepstone. <laughs> he doesn't seem like a right? warrior, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he made very sure that he would be, you know, nice and, and safe right up until he... Wasn't. <laughs> Didn't pay attention to matters closer to home. Yeah. No one, no one, he was not taken out by a sword. Let's put it that way. So, the, yeah, the thing that reminds me of Zaro is how you have someone that is not 
warlike necessarily. Not that he wasn't for sure. It just, he doesn't seem like it. With a name like the Silver Tongue and being a merchant prince, he's just, like you say, he seems like the money man, not the violent man. He's, he's totally fine with violence being done, but it's not him specifically, personally dealing it out. He's paying other people to do that. Uh, like a mob accountant or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so this guy... Actually, actually, I was, I was going to say, uh, he reminds me a lot of like Meyer Lansky. Ooh, yeah. Right? Mm. A sort of, you know, more the sort of businessman gangster. Yeah. He, but he, also someone who is very good at like convincing other people to do stuff organizationally, which he would benefit from enormously. That's a great comp. Yeah, I, I love to listen to mafia podcasts and I've been listening to some... I recently listened to something about Meyer Lansky, so that's fresh in my mind. That's a great comp. And like Zaro, Zaro was just like flattery and was constantly giving Danny gifts and just trying to get what he wanted out of her by... And, and never seemed to get... I mean, eventually he got frustrated, but he was just always just playing it off like, oh, you know, you make me sad <laughs> with your with this and that. Why not just... Sail around the gold, you know, sail around UT with me and drink from the wine of poetry, whatever he says, all his flowery language. But it yeah. sounds like very silvery. You know, and I think of silver tongue. I'm like, this is the kind of yes, stuff Zara he's was saying. very, very flattering. And also you get the sense, someone who, uh, tremendously insincere, right? <laughs> Doxos's whole thing is that he's always like, the thing that he claims to want is not never the thing that he actually wants. Yeah. Right? Because he's like, you know, oh, Danny, I'm so in love with you. I'm totally not sexually interested in you in any way. Um, but yeah. it's like, you know, but I need to marry you because I want this dragon because I want... Yep. You know. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, you wonder, like, how would Aliquo speak to Melee? So he would just, like, say the nicest things. Like, this guy is just so full of it. It's like, you're, you're frightening visage. He just, the most clever way is to call him frightening without calling him ugly, you know? <laughs> just, yeah, and, <laughs> you know, in terms of, like, you know, how, how much honor was there among thieves... I definitely get the sense that like, yeah, they were they were gonna use this guy for his money and like, yeah, he can have Tyrosh. But like, I'm sure that Malus thought to himself every second he was around this guy, I could crush your skull with my bare hands. <laughs> yeah, and he and he probably like, was right about that. Yeah. Yeah, just like, you know, <laughs> give me an excuse. I'll do it for fun. <laughs> yeah, and then and then once he if he were able to take Westeros, then he really wouldn't have to worry about Aliquo. It would be it would be like an Illyrio situation where they'd be like, You better give us what we what we paid for. Or we're going to start sending a, a faceless men or what have you after you. So if we summarize all that, we have at least four sellsword captains there. There's some uncertainty with with some of those characters there, and one of them is crowned uh, King Melis. That is two pirates and a merchant. And as we said, a merchant prince is there's some similarities to pirates there, especially because they both have fleets. Uh, and then an exile knight. So I would guess that these sellsword companies, these sellsword captains, their, their companies must have been pretty successful, even though, apart from the Golden Company, of course, none of them seem to still exist. Eh, that we know of. It's possible they're out there somewhere, but... Yeah, well, I mean, the Sons are still, you know... That's true, the Son family. is obviously right. a, a going concern. But as far as we know, the, that's a good point. But as far as we know, the rest of them, if they have descendants that are active, we're not aware of it. Of course, some of them, their names, we don't even know their names, so we wouldn't know. But that's a lot of power they have. It's a, it's a variety of types of characters. And a lot of it's very military-oriented. But I wonder um, how much, when they started off in the Stepstones, I wonder how much uh, action they had, right? How much fighting they had to do. This is yeah. jumping ahead a little bit. But I wonder if it wasn't already partially theirs. Because so many the, pirate, the Stepstones is almost always in the hands of pirates. And so... Yeah. <laughs> um, 
It's a good question. One of the sort of interesting questions, obviously, you know, there's different groups of pirates, right? Yeah. And they don't always get along. So how much did they have to sort of clear out the locals first? Because, you know, you definitely see in, in the like long history of the war for the Stepstones, right? Different groups of pirates and privateers and, you know, official navies all kind of like warring for these little rocky harbors that nonetheless can like let them, you know, sneak in, you know, pirate ships in and out. Yeah. The fact that like Jamie was talking about the Ebon Prince suggests that he was on the ground fighting. Like some yeah. of them probably did get away, right? And especially the cell sales. It's much easier if if they get away, they're they, gone. they can yeah. just take a boat, you yeah. know, they're gone. You're not going to chase the, them to the Basilisk Isles or what have you. It's like, oh, well, they got away, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the the it's it's the fighting men, especially if they're, their cell sail fleets go away, then they're stuck. Then they have to just win or die. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, we have, um, as far as our document goes, this is a 20-page document, and we're uh, roughly on page nine. So let's, we've got a little more time. Let's start with the beginning of the procession of events, and then we'll, we'll call it an episode and come back. But let's talk about, uh, since we've been focused on the Essos side, let's stick with that. We'll come back to the Westeros side when we, uh, probably next time. So on the western side of the Narrow Sea, you've got this formation of the Golden of the uh, Band of Nine. Now there's a large gap here. We don't know what led to this. We don't know who was particularly responsible. It's, of course, it seems it's tempting to think that someone like Aliquo, the the a guy who's a good talker, would have would be really important in terms of bringing them together and convincing them that this was possible. But still, no matter who did it, it's quite a feat. Cell swords and cell ca- sword captains and pirates like trusting each other to carve out kingdoms under, uh, you know, to have, to stick to this agreement. And what the heck is the tree of crowns? This thing they met under to Mm. make this pledge. What on earth is that? And why is it in the disputed lands of all place, a place that, first of all, the fact that it's called the disputed lands needs some conversation. Like the natives call it that. I kind of doubt it. But it's a place that doesn't know kings and queens very well. It's a place that has rejected kings and queens. It's a place that has archons and and whatever they're called in Volantis. Yeah. yeah, places like that. They're not, they don't have triarchs. Kings, triarchs. Yeah, that, that slipped my mind there for a second. So it, kings and queens aren't a big thing in Essos. So the Tree of Crowns is, it's a strange con. It might be where these dreams go to die. It might be like an homage to the fact that they don't have kings and queens. But I would love to hear your thoughts on it. It's a very evocative name, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I get the sense that, like, almost, you know, if, if you were going to, like, uh, you know, mount a stage production of this story, right? That it's, like, Aliquo or whoever had... That there was some tree that they agreed to meet under, and he had crowns put there, and, like, each one was taking one off the tree. <laughs> That's so cool. This needs to be a TV show or something. We need to see yeah. that on screen. That's a great idea. Well, we'll we'll see what you know how far Blood of the Dragon gets. Yeah, one day we Hot might get the dragon, there. Whatever. Yeah, you never know. It it definitely seems, you know, it it has this sort of slightly mythic feel to it that they're all kind of like making this pledge. Oh, actually, you know what it reminds me of a little bit: the Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Okay, I'm not super familiar right, with that. I mean, I know it's a Chinese. Yeah, so there's an oath. The Oath of the Peach. That's what he got it from, son of a bitch. You nailed it. Okay. All right, tell us. <laughs> uh, so in the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, right, which is explaining this warring states period, these three generals, uh, Lu Bei, uh, Guan Yu, and Zhang Fei, take this oath in a peach garden. 
that they will all be sworn brothers from here on out and that they will all, you know, band together to uh, defeat this, the Yellow Turban uh, Rebellion, and then later take on, try to conquer the all of China. Right. And then it didn't end well <laughs> for all of them. <laughs> That's um, some, there's, so a, there's a thing they have in common, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Tree of Crowns, uh, Oath of the Peach Garden, it's got this sort of sense of like these these guys coming together to you know pledge undying loyalty and that's going to last right up until the moment it doesn't right when you know the moment in the heist when reservoir dogs right when everyone pulls their guns on on everyone else right and there's the standoff right on you, you got uh you definitely got some attention here in the chat i can see that uh Jim, let's say, let's say, hey, to give a shout out to our buddy Jim, aka uh, something like a lawyer, who is he says I'm getting shades of the oath of the peach orchard here. So I think he typed that into the chat before you thought of it. So he was he was right there with you. You guys were well, on the same page. Great minds think alike. Exactly, exactly. Well done, y'all. That was great. Uh, live stuff happening right in front of our eyes. We didn't plan for that. So that's a great idea. Um, that, that fits perfectly. And of course, we know George has to be aware of that. He's a, a fan of history and, and great stories like that. Fits too well to to not be on. To, it fits too well to throw that idea away. So let's move on a little bit, though. We've got the another interesting topic that I want to think about the the change to the Golden Company. This is something we talked about in prior episodes, but I want to think about the middle portion here. What we've talked about before was what the Golden Company li- was like at the beginning versus what they're like right. now and how they've changed. Which is to say that nowadays they're more of a evolved fighting force at, at the beginning they were surely mostly just knights and 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 westerosi style of fighting but over generations of living in essos fighting against dothraki and other free companies and all these other things they would learn and adapt and change for yeah. example they have a large archery contingent led by black balak which almost certainly was not part of the original batch of golden company or, or maybe it was to a smaller degree a bigger thing is the elephants right there were no elephants in the original golden company as far as we know certainly got from fighting the volunteers yeah so here we have roughly uh it's not the midway point obviously the golden company had been around since about 212 so, so by the time the golden company invades during the nine penny king's war it would be about 50 almost 50 years after their founding and so it's nowadays they're about 90 years after their founding so it's close to the halfway point yeah, it's been a couple generations. The the people who are like ancestral Golden Company are now what, you know, potentially three generations deep. Yes. But also a lot of people would have died and had to, you know, be replaced. So I wonder, I mean, I kind of doubt that, that that this level, this aspect of the Golden Company had elephants, but they might have. I don't know that they would have bar- used elephants on the stepstones. That seems like the kind of thing they would, if they had them, they would wait to use them on Westeros proper. It doesn't seem like the kind of island fighting isn't really for elephants. I, I don't know about that. It's a transportation would be too difficult. But maybe. But just, it's just for fun. Think about Melee the Monstrous on an elephant. That's not as terrifying as Magor on Valerian. But hey, in a dragonless world, that's as close as we can get. Like, what's next? What's the next closest thing? Melee's on a shark? <laughs> or on a kraken? Melee's riding to battle on a kraken? That's pretty sweet. Yeah, and they definitely, um, I mean, by this point, they, they must have, picked up the close-in spear fighting of the Unsullied. Oh, yeah. yeah. All of the pipe. That's true, because uh, they, fought, they fought them already at, uh, at um, Cohort. Cohort. Mm-hmm. So this is probably, you're right, some sort of intermediary uh, stage. 
Yeah, and I wonder if they took special preparations to prepare for the fact that they'd be doing this island hopping, like, you know, planning how to outfit yourself for such a battle or such a campaign is, is possibly quite yeah. different than anything they've done before. Certainly well, very different from most Westerosi. Like, there's some examples of that, but not many. Incredibly complicated. Yeah. We, we can see from, uh, you know, Dance with Dragons, right? They're landing on one coast of a big continent, right? And even then, they are spread the fuck out and not all of the ships have arrived. Yeah. Uh, and here, you know, they're trying to take all of these tiny little islands and, you know, a lot of island hopping. And, you know, so it's not just like one offloading of ships. It's a lot of like, okay, get on board the ship, go to this island, take this island, get back on the ship, take the next, you know. it's Without it's any island. communication, right? Like in a normal, like, continental battle, you send a fast rider to send news or, or even a raven, maybe. But these are islands. Yeah, you can't, that, that level of communication isn't possible. You can't just send a rider to another island to coordinate uh, yeah. on whether you've been successful or what to do next. It's that, yeah, it's really... Yeah, the best you can do is, is send fast ships with message flags, really. And this messiness is going to be a big part of what we talk about in part two. And it's a big part of why Septon Maribald is so traumatized because this type of fighting is... Right, it's more difficult. It's more stressful. It's less certain, and yeah. it's it's in a foreign land too. Like that's another major difference about this war is that most of the wars in the history of Westeros were civil wars or fighting Dorne, <laughs> right? <laughs> or kingdom versus kingdom. I mean, I'm, I guess in the more recent history of yeah. Westeros, it's fighting Dorne, but in the long history of Westeros, it's just in, in fighting between kingdom and kingdom or within in a kingdom. Having Westerosi peasant levies taken. Outside of Westeros is, I can't think of another time that's happened. You know, we'll we'll talk about this more when we when we get to this. Yeah. But it seems like they were on those islands for a while. Yeah, not a short period uh, of time. Just because you don't normally get you know epidemic diseases, you know, if it's just a brief campaign, that suggests you know settling down for for a while. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So there's a. Uh, it's 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 a big part of it. There's probably, like you say, there's probably part of that is due to the uncertainty and the lack of communication. You have squadrons of men or groups of men that don't know what their orders are and they're cut off from the main body, which means they're not going to be supplied, which means there you go. That's where the disease yeah. and stuff can really, really hit hard. And then they're incorporated. Then let's say they find their way back to the main group and then they infect the rest of their fellows or some of them. Yeah, it just it's so there's so many ways things that can go wrong in a situation like this. Yeah. Like you said, that is something we're going to get into much more detail with the next episode. I definitely wanted to kind of set the stage for that because I think it's super fascinating, super interesting. And I also wanted to give you all a little tease of what we're going to be talking about in the next episode. In addition to that, of course, as I mentioned at the beginning, a big part of this is the aftermath, the coordination of people like John Aaron and uh, Blackfish and Hostrick Tully and Peter Baelish's dad. All these people came together. Tywin, Ares... We didn't get a chance to talk about any of these guys in this episode. And we have a ton of quotes we pulled, but most of them are part two because they describe the action and the, and the back and forth. So we probably pulled like 15 or 20 quotes, but I think only three of them were in part one here. So Ashea will be uh, reading a lot more quotes for y'all next time around. So let us say thanks to everybody. Thanks you to y'all who came live and watched and upvoted the episode and, and added to the great discussion. It looked like 
the chat was was moving very rapidly. Lots of you guys had great comments and, and things that were added in. I wish I could have watched all of that. I'll have to go back and look at it. Quite a, quite a lot. Quite a lot of it was off topic. Okay. Well, still, I bet it was fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. More fun. Cool. Excellent. Um, another character who's going to come up a lot is Brienne, surprisingly, um, next episode, because Brienne is, is kind of our window to aftermath. And it's not just the window to aftermath of the War of Five Kings, because she encounters people who fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings. And that is like Septon Maribald. Prime example, but he's not the only one. So I'm excited to share some of these other details with you that y'all might not have uh, been aware of. I think most of you remember Septon Maribald, but maybe not some of these other characters. All right, so uh, thanks to Ashea for doing so many things at once, as always. Thank you to everybody, like I said, everybody who watched and liked and subscribed and shared. Thank you to anyone who sub- to subscribes to our Patreon and Steven's Patreon. Steven, please tell everyone, remind everybody what you've been up to, what you've got coming. I know we did that at the beginning, but if you have different things to share or if you want to just uh, uh, emphasize, sure. go for it. Uh, so, um, John 5 of Storm of Swords is live on the Patreon uh, right now. Um, next up, uh, I've got a, you know, I want to start my Dunkin' Egg essays, you know, which is going to be very much about the whole kind of Blackfire yes. element of all of them. Excellent. Um, I've got some like leftover projects from back in the day where like I had the whole life of the uh, high spider that like I never I was going to pull together into one document and give a good edit because there's like some continuity problems. Mm. Never, never did the third part of Hour of the Wolf. So like I've got some some projects to do uh, while I'm taking a little bit of a break uh, from Storm of Swords. But like once I've, I've you know, once I, I, I get my hankering for Storm of Swords back, uh, the big thing is going to be uh, that, like, push to uh, the Red Wedding because it's only 11 chapters away. Ooh, we're getting close, huh? <laughs> yep. Right on. I think we're getting there in maybe April. I'm not sure. I, I have to look at our schedule, but something like maybe March. But, yeah, a little ways away for us, too. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. Uh, we'll work offline to figure out when to do part two, but it won't be seven or eight yep. months like last time. It'll be more like a few weeks or one month, perhaps, most likely. Oh, absolutely. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, the episode's already written. It's not like one of those things where I'm almost done. No, it's done. <laughs> Sometimes my it's almost done turn into months, but this one is done. So there's no, oh, maybe the list a little bit will take me months. Nope. I might add a few more notes, but this is good to go already. Uh, so yeah, that's exciting. And let me say thanks to all of our other folks who support us. I'll give some Patreon shout outs and some adioses. So thanks to everybody. Uh, first off. Wait, our, wait, wait. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Some adioses. Adioses? Is that Yeah, adios. adios? Like, like, pro, like adios, plural? Yeah. Uh, like adio. That. Oh, yeah, I see. <laughs> adios. <laughs> that's a cereal. It's a, it's a very loud cereal. Audio. Mm, it stays crispy in the so our peers of the realm include the mysterious BR, our Hand of the King, Lord Stephen Stark, titles, titles, Hand of Queen Ashea, who is known as the best, Lord Jim, the fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, is Warden of the West and a big member of our chat today. Hey, Jim. Lord Stor- George Stormsville, the cunning, is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North, Lord Brendan Lannister is the Bloodline ruler of Castle Everroar and Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by Flagship Prince Damon. He's wondering why it is these people are having such trouble holding the Stepstones. It hasn't been any trouble for him. And he's controlling the Narrow Sea at the same time. 
Well, show them how it's done, Lord James. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragon glass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. He cannot understand why anyone would want to live on an island chain when there's a perfectly good Beyond the Wall area to live in. Huh, some people. Lady Sarah Connolly is the willful. She says, wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. Treasure? Treasure? What did I say? Treasure. And she is Jenny's patron. White walkers include a ray of flint of the mountain flints captured by the weeper only to be raised in the valley of the milkwater, blue eyes, and golden memories. Alexander Greyblood is first of the first men, now crowned in ice called Silencebringer, Woodblinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword Pale Frost. Our small council includes... Lord Daniel, the sneaky Russian, master of ships. Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, master of laws. Lord Fabian Flowers, the bastard of Green Shield, master of coin. And Lord Johan of House Orcos, called Shadowhawk, master of whispers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lord Dyer, uh, excuse me, Lady Dyer Liz of Castle Naki, the alpha patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is breaker of the second stone. Gregor the Toasty is lord of the Red Fort. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete ever used. Lord of Alistair Whitaker is the Lord of the Donhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of the Valyrian Short Swords Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise. Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island is Protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of the Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of Wolfswood, of the Wolfswood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the Mighty Direwind. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane is the Star Spear. Peter Rivers is the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. And Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, is Lady Rider of the Rising Hills. King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, is wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. And because we've got our uh, audio situation better worked out now, Shea can read her Queen's High Council. Yeah, we've got Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whispers. Rebea Stara is Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. Catrin the Wise of House Trondheim, Master of Coin. Grandmaster M. Elizabeth, middle daughter of Liana Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link. And Laura Boros, the lady of infinity and master of laws. Our Lord Commander is Miriam R. Uh, we have Sir Glennon of House Leanne called Lion Cloak, our longest tenured white sword. Sir Dean the White is Knight of the Black Star. Sir Jord of House Pepsi is the Beverage Knight. Gregor Snow is called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. Sir Jan Seaworth is Knight of the Southern Snows. And Lisa is Water Witch of Dorne. And we also have our Queen's Guard for Ashea to read. Led by Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel. Alexander of House Atreides, from the Seat of Dune, I Must Not Fear. Fear is the Mind Killer. Ser Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Ser Leon of House, Wa House Walker, wielder of the two Valyrian steel blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow, Rain. Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids. The Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin. 
And finally, Nora Neko. Nora Nico? Nora Neko, probably. I'm not sure, but I've said it both ways to cover all bases. <laughs> red, our red wedding band includes Sir Newt of the Rock, lead lutist, wielding his werewood lute, uh, dwer, see, uh, Dweemer Note. He's explained how to pronounce it to me in an email, and so I'm trying after the Dweemer Note. I hope I said that right. It's a lute with werewood lute with Valyrian steel strings. Now that is a fine instrument. Our beard guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Copper Main, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of Platinum Red and Brown, his motto, Stay Frosty, and Sir Tim Corgile is Mad Boy of the Western Desert. Last but not least is our History of Westeros Night's Watch, and that is commanded by Lord Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant, who I'm, I'm doing this from memory until I find it. I hope I, I, hope I said that right. Yeah, Lord Commander Benjamin Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss, backed up by first builder Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire and the Snow, first ranger sorcerer Stelica of House Gramercy. Thanks to everyone who helped contribute. There were, as usual, contributions from Flick and Facebook, a lot of the usual suspects, including Nina and uh, a lot of our other usual contributors. So thanks for that. Thanks for the great questions. And if you have questions based on this episode, well, that's one of the great things about the fact we're doing two episodes is we can catch those questions and handle them during the next one. So until that is, until that time comes, when the next episode begins, whenever we figure that out, we'll see you then. And I'll also see you on Sunday for the return of Valar Reredis. We are getting into the first four chapters of Storm of Swords, and we're looking forward to that. So until then, you know what to do, folks. Valar Reredis. <laughs>